for December 11th, 2017. It's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 493. Coco, the notebook by way of Back to the Future. Welcome to Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. The overthinkers are your smart, funny amigos from the internet. We're never happier than when we are watching uh, the movies, watching the TV, listening to the music, reading the books that we love, and sharing them together. Because uh, everything, whether whether it's the uh, the familia you were born with or the familia you choose for yourself, everything is better when you share it together. Uh, so I am Matt Rather, and I am joined by fellow overthinkers, Pete Fenzel. Hello, Pete. Hello, Matt. And Mark Lee. Hello, Mark. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that, that, uh, that spirited fanfare tells you that we are talking about the, uh, the Pixar film Coco, uh, which is the, the newest entry in the Pixar-verse uh, and tells the story uh, of, not of Coco, or does it? Uh, it tells the story of a young boy named Miguel who goes on a, uh, a quest in the land of the dead to find his identity and to kind of find uh, both a, to find, I guess, like a, a poise between individual identity and group membership, uh, which is very, which is the story of the, of almost every story ever, right? Like is the, the, uh, the plot of a lot, a lot of these things, but it's done very affectingly done with great style and panache and done with a lot of, uh, fantastic guitar music. So, uh, Mark, could you just, uh, could you just tee us up with some uh could you with some appropriate dia de los muertos appropriate uh guitar fanfare sounds oh with pleasure uh like that yeah absolutely all right i'm ready to parallel thirds ascending and descending we're gonna hear a little bit more of that uh (laughs) in this podcast i'm i'm like i a little bit it's it's uh it's difficult to figure out where to jump in with this movie. So is it okay, guys, if we start with the title? Um, the, the movie is called Coco. It's not called Miguel. Uh, Miguel is the, the protagonist, right? And, and is, the, is the person who sort of does the whole, all the beats of the hero's journey, leaving, you know, refusing the call to adventure, leaving home, sort of crossing the first threshold, and on and on and on through, through all the things until he comes back. And in that last, spoiler alert for Coco, he comes back. Right, they, <laughs> they don't kill the child. In- <laughs> I was afraid to see this movie for the same reason I was afraid to see Life of Pi, because in Life of Pi, I was convinced the movie was going to end with the brutal mauling to death of a child by a tiger, and I did not want to watch it. And with Coco, I was convinced that either the kid was going to die or everybody was going to die. The kid was going to come back, and his whole village was going to be dead. And you know what? It's not that bad. <laughs> so uh, well, Pete, ev- everyone is going to die. Right, like that's one of the messages of this movie, and that that is uh... Valar Kokomos, right? <laughs> which is different from Valar Kokomo, which is that everybody gotta go to a place called Kokomo. All men must go to a place like Kokomo. 
to get away from it all. <laughs> <laughs> um, that that the the movie is called Coco, right? Oh, oh, sorry. The the point I wanted to make about the hero's journey was that like the the last stage in the hero's journey is is called Master of Two Worlds, right? Both the both the domestic or village world and the the uh, adventure or spirit world that you sort of step into um, on on your hero's journey, and it's literal. Uh, there's actually like an actually the same thing was true of Moana, which was also a pretty rigorous hero's journey movie, right? When she's sort of um, when she's swinging around at the end on the the many tall ships that they have. Um, you know, navigating, trailing her hand in the water, and then just kind of swinging around on the ropes and stuff like that. She is the master of two worlds at that point. And in this, there's actually a scene where Miguel is dressed up in in mariachi clothes, and his uh, dead ancestors are around the family on uh, Dia de los Muertos, and uh, his dead great-great-grandfather like takes his guitar and plays with him, and there's this kind of permeability between the uh, uh, between the spirit world and the um uh the spirit world and the the world of the living so it's uh you know it it is a hero's journey movie and he is the hero and yet it's not named after him right the movie is called coco and and it struck me as one of the important things about the movie that it's you know that it's called coco i think it's about stakes uh and i think it's about i think it's about focus now coco um pete i guess uh, why, why don't why don't you take over for me at, at this point did did it strike you as important that the movie was named after the uh very very elderly uh great grandmother of the hero rather than uh, after the hero himself. Oh yeah, totally. Uh, it's I think it's incredibly important. It's also there's a really cool moment, at least for me. I don't know if you guys felt this way, but for me, there's a moment about maybe halfway to two thirds of the way through the movie where you suddenly realize why the movie is called Coco. And uh, again, we're spoilers for Coco, uh, but I mean, it, we can talk. I think you'll see it, and if you don't see it, it's not the kind of thing where the mystery is going to be t- terribly important. But there is a twist to it, and the issue is Coco's father is a mysterious figure who's been expunged from the family record, which in the faith, in the sort of, uh, how would you describe it as animist? Maybe not animist, but kind of like... Uh, uh, Christian influence, but also kind of pagan influence, for lack of a better word. That that sort of old timey spiritual family based ancestor worship tradition that is in the Mexican Day of the Dead, which is the, at this nexus, like so many of the very best holidays, between uh, old timey social organization and attempts by people later on to change it, <laughs> in that it did not entirely change because it really mattered. Uh, but because her father, who left home and never came back, was stricken from every record, it's created this wound in her family. And the it is sort of revealed that you think that you're watching like a sort of uh, Dante's Inferno kind of story, sort of, about a journey to the underworld and back. But what you're really watching is The Notebook. <laughs> and you're watching The Notebook by way of Back to the Future, where you're, you're watching the story of the kind of last vestiges of the memory of a woman uh, descending into fatal final stage Alzheimer's disease, which is, of course, not a really common topic for children's movies. But uh, but there you go. But So, so the point is that... Uh, Coco is the only person that remembers her father because her father has been stricken from every record. And, uh, and in order for Miguel to come into his own, 
he needs to find that find this father figure. And, and, and let me break this down for you kind of real simple, right? Because Coco is a movie that's in Spanish, and we watch the English version, right? Uh, but there's also Spanish version, but it's, it's bilingual. There's English and there's Spanish. But Coco is also a movie that, uh, that the story of which is being told in very basic, very fundamental cartoon language. And, and here's how it goes. There's three different kinds of cartoon characters that exist. There's circles, there's squares, and there's triangles. And this, and this is this is for reals. Any any book on character design, any kind of basic website explaining to you how cartoons and comics work will tell you that these are three basic types of characters. That circle characters are kind of open, and square characters are sturdy and unchanging and reliable, and triangle characters are active and potentially dangerous. And so Coco is a circle. Um, as in, when you look at the picture of the little girl, she has a round circular head and big circular eyes. And Miguel is a circle. He's got a big round head. All of his features are very round. So you get the sense that Miguel is is the sort of rebirth of Coco. Miguel is the descendant of Coco who is trying to connect with Coco's experience and connect with Coco's life before Coco passes on, when he has this sort of brief moment to interact with her, and she's the relative that he's most similar to but by some sort of trick of the passage of time. And, and Coco is a story about a circle who thinks that his father is a square but finds out that his father is a triangle <laughs> and because because uh, Dela Cruz is a square all over the place, head, torso, everything. And the picture that he has of the sort of mariachi outfit has this very square torso. But when he meets Hector, Hector is very triangular. He has this very narrow chin and this big, wide head. And there's this idea that, like, you can't trust this guy. He's going to be sort of the scarecrow, kind of like he's going to be not – he's going to be silly. He's not going to be able to give you good advice. He's going to be, like, rakish or a thief. Uh, but, but there's this great moment, and this is really the Coco moment for me that ties together Coco and Miguel and all of it, which is that when Hector in memory sings the song Remember Me to Coco, you zoom in on Hector's face, and you see – what is, I think, purported to be one of Coco's first memories, which is of Hector singing to her when she's a little baby. And you see Hector's big, round eyes. And there was this moment for me, I was like, oh, Hector's a circle character because of his eyes, his big eyes and his eyelashes, that when he, he's not a skeleton, right? Uh, but, but he has this sort of like roundness and this femininity to his aspect that Dela Cruz doesn't have because Dela Cruz is very toxically masculine, right? But, but Hector has, is, he has a, a triangular sort of frame, but secretly, intimately, he's round. And so Coco recognizes this roundness in Hector, which Miguel then like recognizes in Coco, and so it's about this like multi generational passage of this aspect, and this aspect is associated with intimate music, openness of the heart to the people that you care about, uh, and and that that Coco is an essential link in this chain, and, and the fact that her kind of memory is failing and she doesn't remember her family or her origin or, or her current environment, she can't perceive it, is is the is the conflict in this story that Miguel. Miguel is acting out. Like, he is sort of acting out her psychic conflict as much as his own, I think. I mean, he is acting out his own conflict, but she's really at this nexus of everything that's happening. So that's that's my take on why it's the Coco movie, because it's the Circle movie, and Coco's name is Four Circles. Yeah. C-O-C-O, right? Mm. Um, huh. 
Wow. Which I don't think is a coincidence, uh, because these are animators, and the, this is stuff that they work on. And think of any Pixar movie, and you're going to have like they love to have square characters who frustrate you by being by like like an up where the main dude is is a square faced guy, but he's not reliable at all, right? Until until he comes around to the end, and then he Buzz becomes Lightyear, reliable. Of course, Buzz, the first the first exactly. Pixar movie, of course, yeah. Yeah, Buzz Lightyear, who is like reliable and then not reliable and then reliable again, because um, you in fact do have a friend in him. Oh no, that's Monsters Inc. But also Stanley, right? Is that his name? The John Goodman character in Monsters Inc. is another square character uh, who's also a monster. And so there's these like they like to play, they like to trot out these like very essential cartoon tropes, but give the character a depth or a hidden agenda or some aspect of discovery where they play against their animation and character design. Well, right, they, they, uh, yeah. that's the, and that's the deal with Taylor Cruz. Right, that he is, um, he's going to be uh, that he's going to be square in the sense of being reliable and kind of uh, uh, he's going to be restored to his place as like a, a paterfamilias, right? And that that is going to heal that is going to heal the wound and the the sort of the wound that is that is reflected by the the rip in the photograph is the you know the the what is it called in psychology a reification maybe of the. Um, of what's going on, you know, of the the uh, rupture in the family dynamic, and that um, that bringing bringing sort of father solid square father back uh, will be all will be right, uh, all will be right with the world when that you know when that happens, and it's it's. Uh, uh, it's it actually turns out to be uh, to not to be the case because his squareness is more a is more a social squareness in terms of like comporting with social expectations of of things like masculinity and 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 also of selfishness and and uh, you know careerism and and um, self centeredness right uh, and and uh, and also a certain amount of insecurity right like all all these times that he sort of looks at himself all these images that he keeps around like the idea that even even in the next world, he has screens up in his ballroom, right where he's always playing his movie. Do you think the screens are always there, or do you think uh, do you think they were just set up for the party? You know, I think <laughs> I think that he actually has those full time. That that's a feature of that house, and not a uh, you know not something that he rented just for the uh, the sunrise spectacular party. Um, yeah, and that, so we, we should probably go back to this talking about Coco a little bit more. But while we're talking about De La Cruz, uh, it seems no coincidence that he was killed not once but twice by a very large circular shaped object. Yeah, bell. that's right. Huh? <laughs> that's I mean, really interesting. Is he killed? Is he killed by the bell's roundness, or is he killed by the clapper inside the bell, which has a slightly different valence than the? Uh... Never seek to know for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for me. <laughs> <laughs> We're all killed by the bell at the end. <laughs> really? Because I feel like I was saved by the bell. <laughs> It probably doesn't. Um, yeah, I mean, I, look, I think I think that's right, and I think that that, like Pete, you're right to you're right to locate the kind of the crucial moment. It's not a Downton Abbey moment. It's actually it is about what the movie is about, uh, and yeah. so it can't be a Downton Abbey moment in that uh, in that particular way. Um, but it's I, that crucial moment um, of recognition, right, and of a kind of a, a recognition between two people, because I feel like the that the the key to this movie. 
It's interesting. Like, what, what, what would you say the message of this movie is? And I think it has something to do with recognition uh, and sort of seeing each other, and especially, especially children, seeing them clearly. But I, I, I can go on about that later. I don't know, Mark. Did you get a sense that this was a, a film with with a message, not not just a, a whole bunch of heartstring tugging uh, uh, stuff that that made it awfully dusty in the theater? I'm gonna go with meet in the middle and 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 do so by way of true authentic understanding, uh, kind of the truth will set you through set you free kind of thing and break you out of the strict uh, 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 strict structures that you thought that you were beholden to, right? So uh, uh, Miguel's family, right? They break out of their strict prohibition against music because they learn about. Um, their family history, and they learn about Miguel's authentic desire to express himself. Miguel learns to accept his family and reconcile with them uh, through, you know, his journey and uh, and learning about the pain and suffering that they all went through, and and sort of the the justifications for the prohibition on music. So everybody learns. Everybody uh, learns le- learns not just about the truth, but also to let go of certain um, selfish aspects. Of themselves, and that's how everybody gets to party with the music and with the family and the shoes at the end. Right, that's I mean, my sense of the and the shoes. Oh God, shoes so important. God, everything in this movie is so important. It's so important <laughs> that it's called Coco. It's so important that the dog can cross into the spirit world. It's so important that it's shoes. Like, can we talk about the dog for, for a second. You want to talk about the shoes? I, I want to no, no, no. Let's let's do the dog. But I, I just, I, I want to sort of co-sign co-sign what Mark is saying, right? Like the 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 moment at which, and yes, it's it's a sort of storytelling contrivance. This is not how actual families work. In case you happen to have one yourself, <laughs> but like the moment at which. Uh, Miguel has sort of realized the cost of the kind of the musical, what the the selfishness that can go along with being an artist, right? Uh, and the self centeredness, the kind of uh, uh, sociopathic self self centeredness that can attend that type of person is the moment that the, his great great grandmother can say to him, "No, uh, uh, no conditions on you know." Can say, "You do you, Mel uh, Miguel," like. And and that that like that that magical moment at which you know all is one and uh, mercy and truth have met together and righteousness of peace and have kissed each other and the 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 lion has lied down with the lamb or or I guess the uh, the the you know ridiculously winged dog has uh, lied down with the the grandiose uh, winged what panther. Uh, Jaguar, maybe? Jaguar, yeah. I only pick a Jaguar because it has a deeper uh, Mexican mythological resonance. Well, right, yeah, it's pretty, right? I mean, yeah. but Big Cat, right, is the yeah. is the point. And that, like, uh, fantastic. Fantastic. Oh, everything is so good. It's so great that the dog is smaller than the cat, right? <laughs> the spirit dog is smaller than the spirit cat. And then at the end, the dog gets a cat girlfriend at the end of the movie. It's so, oh, God, the dogs and cats living together. Chaos. Hysteria. It's so, it's just, I mean, like, I, I, I'm not going to lie, guys. I like, I started crying about like 30 seconds into this movie and it didn't let up. 
uh, it didn't let up the whole time. Maybe it's because it's the maybe it's because it's a big family and the, and things like that. And like you know, I think are very powerful and very meaningful. That's why they make movies about them to a lot of people. And just a sense of like belonging uh, and you know, kind of being you know being recognized or 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 uh, not being recognized, not feeling like you fit in. This is like basic. This is like this is like square circles and triangles emotionally. Like this is the very the very basic building blocks of of um, storytelling and things like this. And yeah, the the moment of kind of the moment of kind of recognition of sort of seeing, looking at people and seeing not seeing your own fears or not seeing your own kind of sense of deficiency, but sort of seeing the person that they are uh, and not trying. And by sense of deficiency, I mean like not trying to undo the mistakes of the past when you look at the the next generation, but sort of leaving the next generation um, to its own self-actualization and to its own uh, mistakes struck me as a big, a big theme of the movie. Hey Pete, what was the name of the dog? (laughs) I'm glad you brought that up. (laughs) So, because the name of the dog was Dante, which, as you know, is one of the characters in Clerks. No, <laughs> so Dante, of course, being the writer of the Divine Comedy, which is a classic Italian poem from the early Renaissance. Would you characterize late, early, early modern, right? Like uh, heading into the Renaissance, one of the first great works of vernacular literature in Italian uh, is, uh, and it's about a journey into the underworld. But I want—I think I'm glad you brought that up because you asked, you mentioned the Downton Abbey moment, and as we all know, the Downton Abbey moment is when the characters talk about something that isn't related to the main plot and give you a doorway into interpreting the whole work. The actual Downton Abbey moment in this movie is about the name of the dog, which is when Miguel's grandmother, I believe, says to him when he says, oh, his name is Dante, and she says, don't name street dogs. If you give them a name... They will never stop following you. Yep. Like once you give them a name, they never stop following you, which is parents and children, right? Which is what you're talking about with this idea. The counterpoint to the idea that you you have to let go the future generation is that you also have to let them go to follow you. Uh, I guess I guess another Downton Abbey-ish moment is when Miguel and Hector are walking, and Miguel is pretending to walk like a skeleton, and Hector says, that's not how skeletons walk, and he's like, oh, I guess it is how skeletons walk, because it's how I walk, and that's like the parent recognizing that the child is actually imitating them, even though they don't perceive it themselves, but I'm, I'm overstepping it. The point being that in Dante's in- Inferno, Par- Purgatorio, Paradiso, Dante has the poet Virgil as his guide to take him into the underworld. Dante, Virgil, the poet Virgil, wrote the Aeneid in which the hero Aeneas also goes down into the underworld. And Virgil prays, right, in his poetry for guidance to go into the underworld and has, you know, what is it, um... But the, the Sybil uh, and other sorts of mystical characters to guide Virgil into the underworld and Aeneas into the underworld. So this is sort of a, an unbroken chain of underworld guides. Although at this point, it's sort of like a Michael Keaton multiplicity situation where the guides have gotten of lower and lower quality each time they've been copied over. And so we're ended up with Dante. But yeah, Dante... Uh, is a he's both he's both highfalutin and utterly venal because he uses hell to punish people he doesn't like. All right. So I mean, Matt, what did you think about Dante, the character, not the guy from Clerks, but the poet, as the name of the spirit animal dog 
Yeah, I mean, right, there, there, there actually is. Uh, there are a lot of switcheroos, right? Yeah. Like in this in this story, and Dante the dog is a couple of the switcheroos, right? Like, yeah. yeah, you think he's going to be an animal sidekick, and then he isn't, and then he is, and then he isn't, and then he is again, right? Like a, a Disney animated movie animal sidekick, the the sort that was kind of lampooned in Moana, uh, where you know where she talks about the rooster being the 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 worst sidekick ever, or where you think. It, Moana was another switch where you think it's going to be the pig. It's actually the the rooster. Um, Right. And like the identity of the dog, like what the dog, what the dog is and represents strikes me as something that is uh, strikes me as something that is uh, also in flux like that and where there are multiple switcheroos and like the, the, um, the, the name also, right? Like, is it, is the dog so what is the role of the dog vis-a-vis the underworld is it that like is it just to sort of um to activate the idea of a journey into the underworld and kind of connect it through early modern literature back to classical literature is it to uh serve as a sort of guide and like uh, to kind of foreshadow the uh the foreshadow Miguel saying, Oh, you actually are a spirit animal after all. You're not, you're not just a dumb dog. Uh, you know, which, you know, when he gets the day glow, uh, when he gets the kind of the Coachella body paint, um, that, you know, that comes to fruition. Uh, yeah, I, I, I mean, it's really more a, it's really more a site of confusion than a site of, of, or, or of kind of multiplicity. Huh, of meanings rather than a site where you can say that there's like one answer and like one reference to um, one reference to, to clerks will clear up the meaning of the, the, the movie. But the, the idea, the idea though of a dog as being the thing that can just, just cross over. Right. Um, it struck me that the dog the dog sees things as they are right the dog is non discursive and that's you know you can sort of say that like however you conceptualize it part of the problem with people is that they're discursive that they they have rationalizations for things they tell them stories about they, they tell themselves stories about themselves about the world about other people about why things have happened and we sort of inflict these stories uh, on one another whether whether or not we mean to, and even uh, perhaps especially if we try not to <laughs> inflict these stories on on one another, and dogs are the opposite of that, right like a dog sees exactly what is happening at uh, at every moment, you know food or not food, you know or uh, or nice or mean right and so this whole uh, this whole sort of dichotomy of um, belonging or not belonging uh or like seeing the dead or not seeing the dead remembering or not remembering these bear have no bearing on the dog the dog is just there right and because the dog is just there the dog can cross uh, the, because the dog is just there the dog is just everywhere and just anywhere right like the dog can cross all barriers and you know go in and out uh of any of any place from the attic to the uh to the underworld to and it's not an underworld it's like in a cross world which strikes me as all, across a, a you know beautiful pedal bridge uh which strikes me as important and then um you know to uh to the party at the end uh getting busy with the cat yeah totally 
the so dog as has the resident dog owner uh, on this podcast. I just want to co-sign everything that Matt said and just also say that, you know, if you have a dog, you know that they are magical creatures. <laughs> I mean, there's just no no doubt about it uh, as well. Um, but just one fun fact here, in case it wasn't entirely obvious by the visual depiction of the dog, this is a very specific breed of dog, right? It's a Mexican hairless dog. Um, I'm not even going to try to pronounce it, but it's uh, Zolo for short. X-O-L-O, and we'll have a link for the Wikipedia article in the show notes. Um, so it is uh, not just, you know, a cute, lovable dog sidekick. It's not just an allusion to um, Dante of, uh, of the Divine Comedy. Uh, it's also a nod to Mexican cultural heritage and uh, uh, a part of the authenticity, yeah. cultural authenticity of this movie. And that's probably something worth getting into, because we can't talk about what the movie is about without talking about its Mexican heritage, because it is so much about its Mexican heritage. Totally. Right? Uh, in, in really interesting ways. This is, this is, by the way, in case you haven't heard, the number one box office movie of all time in Mexico. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. Like, this is the, just like Mamma Mia in the UK. This is the thing that really nails <laughs> Maybe Harry Potter passed Mamma Mia or something. <laughs> but um, this is the one that really encapsulates the culture. No, this is – well, first of all, it's a movie that depicts – I mean, I, I can only infer that it depicts a, a Mexican culture that is recognizable to Mexicans uh, and, and Mexican-Americans from the fact that they've responded to it so much and from what, I, what little I've heard in terms of the emotional response to it. Correct me if I'm wrong, but this seems – this feels like and seems like a movie that is speaking to uh, Mexicans as they are rather than Mexicans as others imagine them to be. Uh, the nexus of the worlds is a big one, and and it's not, not simple. It's complicated. The idea that he has a dog named Dante that's a specifically Mexican breed of dog but has an old European name is just such an interesting intersection of traditions mm. that, that families yeah. uh, family split by borders. Yes. Yes. Go. Can you unpack that a little bit, Mark? Yeah. I mean, uh, earlier on in the movie, we see that uh, as they're crossing over from the land of the dead into the land of the living, there are border control agents who check to see if, uh, you know, the, the, the soul crossing over has a picture on the mantle or on, on the family, uh, you know, shrine. Uh, and if it's not there, then you don't get to cross over. And if you tried to cross over, make a run for it, the border carts drag you back over. Um, now, it's not so on the nose with our contemporary politics and that uh, there is no Trump in this movie. I don't even I say Dela Cruz is a bit Trumpish. Uh, there is no wall, per se. Uh, and the border control agents are not ICE. They're not kind of, you know, agents of the living that are trying to keep out uh, the souls from there um but it, it's it's plainly there and obvious um, and uh, just uh, un- unmistakable for anybody who's tuned into this type of discourse yeah and i feel like the clothes are a big place where the connections and and the various sorts of uh kind of uh, what's the word i'm looking for not continua but dichotomies the, the dialectics that are negotiated in contemporary mexican culture to the extent again i myself am not mexican so i can't speak to it with that level of subjectivity but uh think about the clothes right so miguel wears blue jeans and a hoodie uh, a red hoodie, but a hoodie with a white undershirt. Miguel is not rich. His family has a business. It is not a huge business. Uh, Miguel, you get the sense that Miguel is kind of like a little bit lower on the totem pole, but ha- could be higher on the totem pole if he wanted to be, or at least if he chose to see himself in that way, he could aspire to that. He could kind of build on... The, this is the difference between the sort of mariachi music and the shoe factory. This is the idea of traditional... 
Mexico versus industrial Mexico. Uh, Mexico as a sort of uh, exporter into the world economy versus Mexico as a place where people have lived for thousands of years and incorporated many different uh, ways of living and beliefs and art styles into their very uh, complex and interwoven culture. Uh, and which, which, which image of Mexico are you going to be part of? Mexico, the player on the world stage, or Mexico, the, the sort of even more than a melting pot, right? It's just Mexico is just a stew pot uh, of all sorts of different kinds of peoples. Uh, and by which I refer to pre Columbian tradition, I refer to, and, and like, you know, even the sort of proto stuff like the Mayans, and then the Aztec culture is much later, and then you have the Colombian and the Spanish inter- introduction, but then also the modern introduction and industrial culture. The, the big one that really struck me is that Miguel dresses like how would I would expect a, a Mexican American kid to dress. And the degree to which American or quote unquote Western clothes, how crazy is it to refer to Mexico as not the West, right? But this export of industrial clothing to uh, all over the world, this is sort of a common American style way of dressing. So it's not like Miguel is like really, really hardcore about being, you know, Mexico is for the Mexicans. This isn't like Antonio Banderas and like Desperado and the sequels. Uh, he, he lives in this in a Mexico that is faces the world. But he has these two different father figures, and one of them is the white, res- white dressed, resplendent, ornate, you know, huge sombrero wearing Hollywood ideal. But also the kind of Mexican ideal of what it is to be this sort of part of the old wealth. Like I look at him and look at like a picture of like Vincente Fox, right? Like I was thinking of Vincente Fox a lot when I was looking at Dela Cruz. If you look at just the way that Vincente Fox smiles and the sort of way that he kind of presents himself as a masculine figure, this sort of conservative Mexican politician, uh, that was my sort of frame of reference for for sort of Dela Cruz's style of of elite elite Mexican masculinity. But then you have Hector, and Hector in particular, Hector as the skeleton, who is, I think, not coincidentally wearing a straw hat and a red bandana, which when I see those, I think of pan-Latin American Marxist movements, workers' movements. I'm a little bit more familiar with how this symbol plays out in Puerto Rico as kind of like a, a working class. The working class hat is like a big deal in like leftist Puerto Rican politics. And and the idea that he's wearing a red bandana, that's something that's also identified in Mexico. Like like during the um the 2006 protests, uh, Marxist protests in Mexico, there were like there were like images of the Virgin Mary wearing a red bandana that were put up as graffiti, and, and this idea that um, there is this streak with like Cesar Chavez in Mexico and and like the idea of La Raza, right? Which for for us was like the cultural house that the in college uh, is it, sort of like the idea of the commune, the idea of like the people are going to kind of throw off the way that they've been colonized. They're going to kind of find both their cultural authenticity and their sort of lo- like working class empowerment through this kind of idea of like venerating the working the workers experience and and Hector gets kind of identified with this because he's being exploited uh, well also for other reasons which I can go into in a second but this idea that that Hector is the exploited Mexican worker whose whose work whose life's work and his identity has been subsumed under the 
export of Mexican pro, you know, Mexican glory and 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 effort and accomplishment out into the world, which is not necessarily in and of itself a bad thing. Uh, to have your your culture exported, everybody loves De La Cruz. You know, they love who he is. But the fact that he had to exploit Hector to do it is is unforgivably bad, and that this conflict I think is part of of. All of Latin America. It's it's I, from what I've understood from talking to people, it is baked deeply into the Latin American psyche. The, this idea that you are you are at the nexus of colonialization on one hand, but also at the exploitation, native exploitation and exportation, uh, and and then also this idea of like we uh, we value and venerate our lower class people in much the same way that that the rest of the european influence world does it like they did in france in their revolutions and many revolutions even in you know there's like a through line across all these things uh in in you know in america he would in america if, if hector were in the united states he would be wearing overalls right and he might have like a like a, a hayseed piece of straw that he's chewing on or he might have like a hammer and work on the railroad or something he might be chinese or he he might be black and sing you know um, uh, blues music and have it be stolen by a white man like Elvis Presley. Yeah, yeah. So and that so, that doesn't yeah. quite map exactly to this going on, but there's a similar power dynamic and exploitative thing going on. I think is what you're saying, right, Pete? Yeah, and and I think that this is at the heart of what it was like to watch Coco for me. In that, I don't celebrate Dios de los Muertos. I'm don't really see these symbols and feel a real deep cultural resonance with them. My sense is that this movie for some people is like that. But I can look at the way that the symbols work with each other and it it's intuitive. Like it makes sense. It seems to attach to political narratives that aren't just about um, Mexico or the United States or Europe or anywhere else, but that have this sort of like that that are identifiable and recognizable to other people, um, but that also go into a fair amount of detail and specific detail. Uh, I mean, I, I could keep going, but I guess I'll pause there because there's the whole other dimension of all this, which we could go into, which surrounds Frida Kahlo. But before we even get into the role of Frida Kahlo in this movie, uh, and what do you guys think of that? As this as Coco being essentially a Marxist criticism of the like venerated peninsulare Mexican mariachi, right? The sort of like white guy Mexican Hollywood star uh, as, as a sort of exploitation of the more authentic, family-oriented, internally-oriented, culturally-oriented, personal and intimate uh, Mexican father. Sure. I mean, uh, what you're what you're talking, right, yeah, not and and father as like relationship, not father as social role, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. And like, actually, like, I probably important that it's like a father, uh, it's a, a father of a daughter, right? Like the the actually the the um, yeah, I don't know what is oh, what as is opposed the, to, as opposed to father like Catholic priest, which Dela Cruz does play in one of the clips. Yeah. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. Sort of all the more, right, like all the more, but also in the in the clip that rings falsest of all the clips that he portrays, right? Like that clip is played for laughs because it's so absurd and stupid, right? Where he's like, he will listen to music. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> anyway, sorry, Matt. Go on. Well, it, it is it is ridiculous. I mean, I I sort of think of that as the. You know, you think of movies like that, and they're, they're, they they exist, right? Like, um, and this the kind of traditional role of like a, a man and a woman on screen, like a leading man and a leading lady on screen together, to kind of create 
uh, to like uh, cement <laughs> heterosexuality to like just put another brick in the wall, um, another cinematic brick in the wall. And then when you make them both celibate, right? When you make them both uh, sort of practicing celibate chastity, what does that do? And like all the more, he's all the more sexy because he can't, because he's uh, uh, a priest and is sort of like opted out of, of the, uh, opted out of the, the sexual stakes, opted out of procreation, right? Like he's so sexy that he flies through the damn air, you know? Uh, it's, it's interesting. I mean, like this is actually yet another area that we could go is all the kind of the, the metatextual aspects of this movie because we're all, we're often, um, seeing things mediated through, uh, mediated through screens, but like I, I was, I, I was interested in like uh, patriarchy versus matriarchy and what like uh because i think with with pete with what you're saying like the value of the shoes right and like um the root word of humility is the latin word for like ground for dirt um right. you know just kind of like soil uh the uh humility is feet on the ground you know and that like that the shoes uh on the ground the kind of the lowly down in the you know down in the dirt um sort of thing that they make this kind of necessary uh this kind of necessary thing that they do is uh, you know is is part of that value system that you're talking that you're talking about like the the interesting thing that it that it struck me just as the words were coming out of my mouth is that like where where are we on sort of where are we on uh sexual politics right like where are we on sort of men versus women because what happens is that the um what happens is that the the family um the the uh the exclusion of music right like the exclusion of creativity is done by the kind of matrilineal line in this strong uh this strong kind of matriarchal leadership led by the second generation the led by the the oldest um kind of capable woman you know and if if you were to sort of think of like just think of basic storytelling you know like who is law who is uh uh buttoned down who is military who is um you know uh young and who is uh who is welcoming creative nurturing yin right like uh the law is dad and the the music is mom and it's the it's the opposite of that right so that it it uh it sort of turns it uh, turns that trope on its head and and where we end in the end, where we end is not in not in what you would get if De La Cruz were dad and he came to kind of restore order, right? Uh, but we end in more uh, uh, a sort of harmony that is that is metaphorically sort of figured by the dancing skeletons. Like everyone, whether you're living or whether you're dead, you are dancing, uh, with your, uh, with your appropriate partner for your generation. Right. And that, that like that sort of dance is the, is the model. And, and, you know, that's sort of beautiful, right? Like that there's not, it's not one or the other. It, it's both kind of contributing their unique, 
their unique strengths and there is this kind of like interplay there's this aspect of it that's interplay and there's this aspect of it that's uh um give and take you know mm-hmm. that is uh uh, that's good. I, I think it's also, I mean, I feel like it's also important that the kind of the original, the, um, the kind of the original memory, which we see in black and white, right? Like of, uh, of Hector singing the song to Coco is the transmission, you know, is, is a kind of a, a nurturing of a daughter by a father. Right. And, uh, you know, breaks down, I mean, sort of reverses a lot of tropes in a uh, in a scene that's at, totally normal and is the sort of thing that you would expect it to happen in in a family, right? Like, or that you would hope would be the kind of interaction that would that was possible in in this family, and yet seems like such a reversal, right? Like, seems like such a breakdown of of established forms where where there's this sort of uh, where there's this sort of tender, nurturing uh, moment of parenting, and it's it's by a father to a daughter, by by Hector to uh, by Hector to Coco. So it's it's you know it's not about um, it's not the movie is not about it's a switcheroo, right? The movie is not yeah. about what Miguel thinks it's about, which is kind of restoring his patrimony right it's about kind of it's it's about the sort of discovering a mutuality that uh that is missing in the hyper masculine de la cruz and is also missing in his abuela's uh you know, and but she's a square, by the way. Just look yeah, at the, yeah, just no, look at that jaw, right? Yep. <laughs> like mm-hmm. uh, she's a square um, in, in her kind of banishing uh, of of music from the thing. Anyway, that's a long way around the barn to yeah. say, yeah, Pete, I think you're right. So, yeah, just to to build on it and focus it, Abuelita is the square. She's the one who takes on the role of the father figure when he's gone from the family and and remember that her focus is providing there's that scene where she tries to feed miguel like 10 tamales and it's sort of like this is how i understand what love is by providing you with more food right like and uh and getting you big and strong because she should not and that's the kind of masculine gesture is that i've put food on the table uh for you and 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 why you want music you want love you want these other things that's not how the word works that's i don't understand that that's not how my life has gone uh so let's talk about let's talk about shoes (laughs) you want to talk about shoes no no no, i'm saying that's yeah 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 yeah, exactly let's let's not talk about hugs let's talk about shoes (laughs) let's not talk about hugs the shoe 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 is like a hug you give your feet (laughs) yeah Okay, before we go on to Pedo Kahlo territory, because that's a whole thing, uh, just go back to address your question from a little bit earlier, Pete. Like, you know, is this movie, like, or really, not so much is, but how strong is the Marxist message in this movie? All right, within a very narrow band, I see it very clearly, which, like you said, right, how, you know, De La Cruz exploited Hector's music, and there was, uh, in a little mini violent overthrow of the, uh, of, of the, of the cap, of the capitalists. Um, you know, by killing De La Cruz and then, you know, having Hector's uh, contributions to music and uh, all, all that be, be recognized. Um, but beyond that, though, 
what Matt was just talking about and what I had mentioned earlier is the predominant theme of the movie is about a mutualism, about a coming together, sort of a, a balance, finding an appropriate balance, which uh, isn't, I feel like, part of the Marxist discourse of violent overthrow, seizing the means of production, so on and so forth. Yeah, I don't. I wouldn't say that the movie is – it's not like people are like, hey, let's make a Marxist movie and also makes it, make it about Mexico. It was more like <laughs> let's make a movie about Mexico and let's incorporate certain social and, and kind of cultural representations within – Mexican culture writ smaller and Latin American culture writ larger that in, that involve these ideas of who is the father of this country mm. uh, in, in a metaphorical sense who yeah, is the father of this culture and it's a little bit it's not it's not good for an for an American audience right because the history of anti capitalism and the history of kind of revolutionary politics in this country is very different from yeah. uh, the history of those things in Latin America and for what it's worth um, it's not well taught here right like it's not something it's not part of the world that you really uh, are gonna learn about in your social studies class in in the sort of detail that that you would need to actually have the the sort of sensitivity that you need to uh, probably hear these messages that that the movie is putting, but I think it's probably a sign of the it's probably a sign of the success of the film's artistic project that it seems to speak to those things in it, in their own terms. Yeah. So so to bring that out a little bit more, can can we talk about the Frida Kahlo thing now, Mark? Is that okay? Or yeah. Is that let's do be, it. Okay. Let's do it. Let's <laughs> I feel like I have to ask for. I, I am pasting a unibrow on. Right do we now. have Do you have a license? Do you have a license for that unibrow? So I have the sneaking suspicion, and I wonder if anyone can confirm it for me, whether the big crowd scenes are full of famous dead Mexican people. But I don't know if they are or not because I don't know enough famous Mexican people for history. But there is one who is very heavily represented in this movie. It is Frida Kahlo the painter. Frida Kahlo the painter was uh, notably married to the painter Diego Rivera. Miguel's last name is Rivera. So uh, Rivera, Miguel is potentially related to Frida Kahlo, though, and I think this is important, not descended from Frida Kahlo because it is very important that Frida Kahlo had no children. Uh, Frida, this is important for her work. Her work is very focused on femininity and fertility, but she had a bunch of miscarriages and she did not have any kids. And I think that if you're analyzing her work, uh, finding her finding her femininity in the context of all this happening to her and, and what femininity means to her in, in an experiential sense as opposed to an ideal sense is, I think, really important to talking about Frida Kahlo. Now, with that in mind, now, Diego Rivera, you may know as being the muralist who is going to paint the big Marxist murals that are going to go in Rockefeller Center in New York City. If you've seen stuff like The Cradle Will Rock and things like that, he's like a Marxist painter. Um, so that also connects it to the history of Marxism. But again, as Matt has said, a history of Marxism that is not the one that you are taught in school. Uh, that is that is more seamless with the with the experience of certain populations for who for whom it is a reality rather than a boogeyman. Um, but Frida Kahlo, okay, so she is not that dissimilar from from Dela Cruz in the sense that Frida Kahlo, as a painter, is famous as much as anyone is for taking a uniquely what I would describe as a uniquely Mexican perspective. Now, I wouldn't necessarily that Frida Kahlo was efforting to synthesize the Mexican identity, but she is concerned with uh, decolonization. She is concerned with um, 
the sort of the, the national identity, the social identity, vocabulary of symbolism of her culture. She's concerned with you know, dialectics. She's concerned with her, her, the role of her femininity in the larger social structure. And it's something that gets put out there into the world, that Frida Kahlo is known in the context of Coco. She is not known because there are people on Earth who remember her fondly from her family. She did not have kids. She is known in the same way that Dela Cruz is known, because her work disseminated broadly around the world and meant a lot to people. And by the way, and her it, most yeah. famous work, Self-Portraits. Yes, which I feel like this movie deserves a ton of credit for being so faithful <laughs> to the work of Frida Kahlo in a cartoony way, in representing it as a series of heavily yonic and phallic, distorted and kind of mutilative self-portraiture, <laughs> which is like not that far off from a lot of her actual painting. Um, although, although it is notable that this movie is full of people who are pretending to be Frida Kahlo, that are not Frida Kahlo. And, and it is interesting because if you are trying to locate the the fundamental sin, the like wrong thing that is done in this movie, in you should keep your songs with your family and with your culture and not export them, then and that you think the evil is that Dela Cruz takes Mexican music and plays it for a global audience, and you think that no Mexican music should stay in Mexico. Mexican music is for Mexicans. Frida Kahlo in this movie is the big counterpoint to that because there's nothing in this movie to indicate that people shouldn't love Frida Kahlo. And Frida Kahlo is somebody who takes art that is very ingrained in her culture and does disseminate it around the world and finds just legions of adoring fans. Now, granted, it's a little bit different than her being a big Hollywood starlet, although, of course, she'd have Salma Hayek produce and star in a movie about her life. So she is in engaged with Hollywood in her legacy in that way. But the point being that, like, Frida Kahlo didn't keep it at home. She didn't keep it in the house. She she put it out there. And so for her – what? so he, the question then is what is the difference? What is the difference between Frida Kahlo and Dela Cruz other than murder? Although maybe murder is the only difference. But what is the difference between, between Frida Kahlo as an exporter of Mexican culture and Dela Cruz as an exporter of Mexican culture, wherein Dela Cruz is an evil, exploitative bad guy and Frida Kahlo is a worshipped and venerated artist? And I'm sort of posing that as a question for well, you guys. Well, I, I mean, I can take a stab at it. Mark, do you yeah. have an idea? Uh, go for it, Matt. I think, I think because she uh, is both the generator and the, the exporter, right? That, okay. is, that is to say she combines the Hector and the De La Cruz role. She is both doing the, uh, doing the, the artistic production and sort of the myth-making, right? Like, this is a, a film that's not against myth-making and it's not against grandiosity, right? Like, it revels too much. That, that City of the Dead, that, the, you know, when you cross the bridge, is too glorious to not be like, oh, yeah, no, we, we, everything should be small and humble and kind of drab, you know? Uh, the, there's, there's, I, I, I think it's not, it's not necessarily, um, it's not necessarily the myth making. It's the the uh, the exploitation in service of the myth making that is the real uh, you know that is that is the real problem. So so Frida Kahlo right like and and like the seeds come out of the papaya and they're dancers and all the dancers are me and then all the you know and then all this happens and all the people are me and then this and this and this and this and happen you know be a, a, a little bit like two things like one she, she's 
she's after something, you know, she's about something. It's not just like, you know, give me your, give me your paintings and then I'll, I'll export these things. Um, you know, she's not just a kind of a, a capitalist. She's not just creating surplus value. She's actually creating value. And the other thing is that, like, everyone dresses up as Frida Kahlo, right? Like, news, yeah. you know, to, to just completely butcher it and use a different different language. Newsom Frida Kahlo. You know, we are all, we are all, everyone is Frida Kahlo. And that, that, that Frida Kahlo is available to you. To, to kind of enter into Frida Kahlo-ness a little bit and to kind of participate. I, I won't say enter into. Um, uh, I'll say participate in Frida Kahlo-ness. Uh, and that, like, that that's available to you. That that is a mode, uh, li- you know, that as great art does, it sort of gives you... A, a language for talking about a part of yourself or a part of experience that you didn't you didn't have before, mm. you know, and that like I, yeah, for what it's worth, it's not not the most organized or systematic answer in the world, but uh, but I think there's something something to that there about how uh, about how the movie sees the difference. Mm. I mean, that sounds great to me. <laughs> uh, wait, let's all be Frida Kahlo, right? <laughs> we have. I've always been, always been being Frida Kahlo. Um, I'm thinking more about like this idea of the image of Frida Kahlo because remember when uh, Hector is first trying to pass through and was dressed up as Frida Kahlo. There's something to the effect of like, oh, my picture is everywhere, all across Mexico, all across the world. Everybody remembers me, and because my picture's there, that allowed me passage through. Um, and likewise, uh, De La Cruz's picture is everywhere. His video is everywhere uh, not you know in in both worlds um and uh, in particular at the end right and we we touched upon this briefly earlier but this seems like a good of opportunity as any to di- dig into this a little bit more how at the end dela cruz's picture everywhere is his undoing right yeah. um which is very different from from frida Kahlo, um whose picture everywhere is just you know kind of a, a share is her, apo- yeah, is her apotheosis um, but Dela Cruz is, is undone by the moving picture, the mass media, which uh, w- which made him famous to begin with. Yeah, it makes me think that in the photo, because photos play such a huge role in the way that the Day of the Dead is described here. That if you don't, it, you you have to have a photo, which makes you think, well, what about the poor people before there were photographs? Was there no heaven, that kind of thing, or like was there no land of Dios de los Muertos before photography? They don't go into that in this, and and I probably would make a pretty annoying Mexican schoolchild were I to ask such a thing. But but the idea being like. Um, it's not just the photo. It's that the photo represents a memory or connects with a memory of somebody that feels like authentic or meaningful to you in a positive way. And Dela Cruz does have that at first. But but yeah, I mean, I guess to, to talk about the photos in another way, like, is it hypocritical for Disney to say that uh, sort of disseminating the Mexican culture through a movie is like a bad thing? Uh, at the same time that it also says that movies are going to be what reveal the truth about people. Uh, this is a movie this is a movie that is that both portrays movies as false and as true, uh, which I thought was is sort of an interesting way of of dispensing with cake. Dela Dela Cruz's movies are lies when it is convenient for them to be lies, and they are truths when it's convenient for them to be truths. Well, yeah, but that's I mean, it's it's a switcheroo, right? Like like 
like many things, it's a site of instability yeah. rather than rather than of a single reading. I, so, okay, I've been thinking about this, right? Like because the 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 A word, and we haven't said it, thank goodness. But like the A word floats, I could kind of float around this movie, like the the spirits of the dead, you know, coming to uh, uh, coming to haunt the people who don't remember them correctly, um, and and a little bit like. You know, <laughs> there's going to be a culture baked into baked into a story, right? Like that when you tell when you tell a story, there's going to be a uh, a culture um, that is sort of promulgated by the uh, uh, by the story, and like how Doctor Strange promulgated Asian culture. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> for certain definitions, sorry, Avatar: The for, Last Airbender. <laughs> for certain no, definitions of that, promulgated, that, I mean, I prom- mean promulgated is that you're promulgating a white culture when you cast everybody as white and you write a white version of a movie, uh, and so on and so forth. Anyway, yeah, yeah. Pro- than, I that, mean, promulgated promulgate means promulgate means not just uh, not just publish, but sort of publish and enact, kind of publish and make official, like yeah. publish and kind of get your story straight. You know, yeah, uh, and not just represent, but live, right? Yeah, exactly. But, like make make real and manifest, and that reify, like, um, and that like, uh, and and it's. I think it's okay. Like, I think it's okay to make an effort as long as it's done in good faith, and as long as it's done like, um, in a way that actually tries to do justice to the actual thing, as long as it's done with a sense of justice. As it seems to have been with Moana and now Coco, right? Like the the Walt Disney Company seems pretty invested in getting these things right, you know. Um, and, and for a lot of non uh, uh, altruistic reasons, right? Like getting them wrong would be disastrous, you know. But uh, the, but they are kind of putting the time and the money into, you know. I, I don't know, hiring the right consultants, making sure the, the, the creative team has a kind of authentic connection to the material uh, rather than is just kind of ventriloquizing it, like things, things like this. It, it, uh, the, the actors, you know, are, are all actually bilingual, I think. I think that in the, the Spanish version, at least, they voice themselves. Um, there are probably other dubbed versions around the world that that use local actors in the in the places that they are. But like, uh, so if if you're going to have to, if you're going to make movies, if you're going to have like the 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 biggest media company since God, you know, uh, and they're going to make movies, you probably are doing you probably are doing okay if you try to make the uh, if you try to. Um, make a, a a statement about cultures other than, you know, Hans Christian Andersen's and the, the, the brothers Grimm's right. Other than Northern and central Europe, you know, and that like the, I feel like this is not, it, though it is not the perfect world where we, that we would like to see where like every nation around the world has a Disney and all the Disney's are co-equal and they all, you know, make beautiful films about their own cultures and nobody ever mixes anything and nobody ever does, you know, it, I mean, nobody ever speaks anybody's language because that would be the A word. Um, like, 
you know, I'm sure that's the world we would all like to see being, you know, woke, right thinking progressives. Um, given the world that we have, this is probably better than letting things carry on with the status quo. Anyway, that's as far as I got. The, the 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 Anderson Grimm status quo. That's as far as I got right. in my thinking about it. I'm not sure that that is the. I'm not sure that that's the the whole picture. There's probably a lot more complexity to it, which I'm sure we can can uh, tease out in the the last um, you know three minutes of the hour of this podcast. <laughs> I don't know what 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 did you think of of the A word? The A word. Yeah. What a word do you have in mind, Matt? <laughs> uh, oh, Just say it. Yeah, er, appropriation. Oh, oh. So, so yeah. That didn't strike me at all when I was watching the movie. I mean, I maybe it's because I already arrived at the movie knowing that it was the number one box office hit in Mexico of all time, which seemed to me as as much of an endorsement from Mexicans writ large as you were ever going to get. But that wasn't a, that wasn't um, a foregone conclusion, right? Like it could have been rejected by that market, in which case we'd all be having a different conversation. I, I mean, me, I guess. I, certainly I would have approached it differently uh, if if I, I had seen a whole bunch of protest, I mean, I, I have it partly is because I deactivated my Facebook for the last week, which has been awesome. But um, but it's that uh, I haven't seen a ton of outrage that Coco was bad. But also, just in terms of watching it, the level of detail, it did feel like they did their homework. In, in, in a, even to a greater degree than with Moana, where with Moana it seemed like well they're kind of being they're kind of like mixing up their Polynesian and their Hawaiian a little bit you know maybe they're Samoan and, and these are all different places these aren't the same people um, but like it's fine they're 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 clearly they're clearly trying to uh, as you might have described it they're they're trying to locate the center of gravity of the representation and of of the reification the cultural reification is trying to be located somewhere other than as you've called it the grim christian anderson verse but at the same time it is a global media company it's producing a global uh, entertainment and so it needs to be something somewhat transferable to all these other different audiences uh, in order to accomplish its purpose. But at the same time, there's this sense of, well, if you just sort of phoned it in, then nobody would care, right? Like part of what makes it interesting is, and part of what makes it different is that you're drawing what kind of inspiration you can draw from this body of religious and cultural and spiritual and musical and social practice that is not what you might default to. Again, I don't know... Um, I don't know how much, like what consultants worked on this, but I, I I was watching this as like certainly the the Day of the Dead celebration in this movie seemed more in the know than the one in like Spectre. <laughs> like, like we had a, a year with a bunch of Day of the Dead representations, I think, in uh, like the last two years in movies of like somebody getting lost in a. Oh no, that was because of Diasdelos Holcos. In Thor Ragnarok, uh, yep. where everybody was having the big Hulk parade, and, and it like felt sort of vaguely similar to that kind of event. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I I felt like um, if someone is going to levy the charge of appropriation at Coco, I'd like to hear their case. I'm not going to be the one to make it. I don't think it's my case to make uh, because I don't think I have that kind of authority to say. Like I don't have that kind of knowledge. Um, I, I'm not going to make that case. If somebody were going to, it's kind of what Matt was alluding to earlier. It's going to boil down to the fact that like who owns the Walt Disney Corporation? Uh, you know, the shareholders, right? Who are primarily uh, white 
uh, are they the ruling class folks? I don't. Oh, we know. don't know. It's, 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 it's <laughs> I don't know. We don't know. We don't know that. It's effect, probably right? like probably like, like a lot of big institutional retirement funds is who owns yeah. the Walt Disney. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's actually probably a lot of Chinese money as well too, given how much of it is sloshing around the world economy. Um, so I mean, it's like this: the the global capitalist system owns. Uh, owns the Walt Disney Company, right? And, you know, if you were going for some, you know, purity of storytelling and things like that, it would fall short of that. Any movie that reaches any white audience is going to fall short of that. That absent, um, I, I don't even know, right? Because if you shoot a movie by yourself on an iPhone, then you're participating in the global economy. Well, right, yeah, and well. right, and this was this was the thing. Like we've we've obviously on the the TFT podcast because we talk about indie music, we've gotten into this talk about about indiness, right? And like my, you know, my point about you know people who claim to like have opted out of the capitalist music distribution system because they only make music on their Apple laptops, right? And, and they like live in this sort of this bubble of non-interference like a faraday cage that protects them from the like the bad radio signals of capitalism outside and my my point is that like your 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 faraday cage of non-interference rests on a pyramid of human skulls uh because the 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 system that gives you the tools that allows you to have your your non-interference is you're already complicit in you know the worst excesses of global capitalism and and yeah like you say you're not going to have a movie with global distribution you're not going to have a movie that's putting up you know nine figure or ten figure grosses without uh uh, without a, a sort of global distribution system, right? Like without um, this, these, these things putting in place. And like, given that there's, you know, given that that is a reality of how these things have to come about right now, what would you rather have them be about? Is my point. Like, what would you rather have their manifest subject be? You know, more mermaids. <laughs> 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 more beauties and more beasts, you know. Uh, I mean, I, I think here you're just sort of inventing critics because you've been burned so many times that you're feeling like everyone's going to criticize you for it. More, more, li- um, more lions, king. <laughs> we yes, clearly, Cle- clearly, clearly, what we need is is more uh, monarchical animals at various degrees right. and ranks. Because Lion King is not without cultural appropriation either, right? I know the way what they did to poor William Shakespeare was uh, just beyond the pale. <laughs> you know, I mean, I mean, uh, to, 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 to cash this out a little bit more, not just to hand wave it. Uh, there are a variety of specific complaints involving appropriation and Hollywood. One of these specific ones is that it denies work, jobs, and money from professionals of those ethnicities. This is not a movie that does that, as most of the actors are. Either and again, I can't necessarily say they're all Mexican, but are at the very least uh, Latinx, right? <laughs> like uh, Edward James. Sure, Olmos, are, are Hispanic you know. in the sense that they yeah. speak Spanish. I mean, are uh, well, I mean, a lot of people speak Spanish, but like <laughs> in the sense that of their cultures. I mean, I'm, I'm looking at the cast. What Gail? Let's let's unpack it. Gail Garcia Bernal. He's from Mexico. Uh, he's Hector, right? Benjamin Bratt. Is uh, he is Dela Cruz, right? And he is uh, his mother Peruvian, is an indigenous activist of the Quechua ethnic group born in Peru. But, so he's not Mexican per se, but he but is. He's, he's no, he's San Franciscan. 
<laughs> Born in San Francisco. Born in San Francisco, right, of course. Where, where is he from? He's from California. Um, and then, what, Renee Victor? Uh, and she is – she's on Weeds. They don't, she's not famous enough for them to have given information about her childhood in her Wikipedia page. But, but just like I don't look at this uh, – Anthony Gonzalez as Miguel – Right, like uh, I, that's sure, not right. like, like is a the, job that's being taken away from a young Mexican American actor unfairly. Right, right. Is the, right. And are that's the a sort very of real consequence of appropriation? Right, in and that's this sense. like economically, that's the real problem. Is that like yeah. all the benefits? You know, all the work of the culture was done by the people whose culture it is, and all the benefits flow to the to the people uh, who are stealing it. And it, at least in the in the um, or who are kind of like producing the the producing the the instance of it and. And like uh, that's at least in terms of above the line talent, right? That yeah. that doesn't seem to be uh, that doesn't seem to be the case here. Though this, I mean, you can sort of go the other way. Like John Ford, the the d- famous director of westerns, stagecoach, and others. Um, you know, has defended or I, I guess not has uh, defended himself against charges of uh, poor representation of the the native tribes that that he you know made the Indians in all of his films by saying, well, yeah, of course it was a you know crappy representation, but I gave them all jobs. You know, those were real. Those were real <laughs> native actors, right? Like, uh, so I mean, it's a, it's a, uh, it's, I don't know. It's a complicated topic and one that we're not going to, uh, one that we're not going to solve here. But it, it seems that people. Are, I mean, I think it's, it's fair to say it seems that people are not getting a sort of creepy feeling about Coco, but instead are kind of embracing and celebrating it, which is nice to see because it's, you know, uh, it's, it's nice to see because it seems. Seems like a step in a good direction and, and a, a direction in which we'd like to see more steps in the future. I mean, fair enough. Yeah, sure. I like Coco yeah. and you should make more movies like it. I like Moana too. I think, I think exploring the cultures of the world and giving us a variety of voices and a variety of depictions and pulling on different uh, traditions is all good stuff. And I think it's awesome. So let's and I look forward it. to I look forward to talking about this again when uh, the Aladdin live action movie and the Mulan <laughs> movie come out. Yeah, this, this ain't is, over. Uh, this ain't this is ain't, this is not the hill to die on. <laughs> Who knows? There is a different battle coming, and that one is going to be harder fought. So. <laughs> so save your save your ammo is what you're saying. I think, Keith. I think people everyone's saving their rage yeah. for when it's actually going to make a difference. All right, fair when enough. Well, actually going to find a target. I don't feel rage. I feel great gratitude at. at having uh, had the opportunity to watch this film and to talk about it with you guys. And I feel great gratitude to all of our listeners who have listened to us do it. You want to talk to us about uh, Coco? You want to talk about the uh, um, anything about uh, anything about this film? Uh, uh, especially the kind of the metatextual aspects, which we really didn't get to in, in any uh, great depth in this uh, uh, in this podcast. Well, uh, find us. The show notes on this, um, on this episode are uh, on the website. Go to the homepage of Overthrow thinking it, you can click through and uh, join the conversation there. Hey, uh, it's not too late to uh, get yourself some Overthinking It merch or uh, to get yourself or someone you love some gifts from the Overthinking It gift guide. Those are still there. Go to uh, OverthinkingIt.com. You'll see the animation of the snow falling in front of the ugly Christmas sweater with Otis knit into it. Um, Beautiful graphics, some beautiful Otis merchandise. Uh, we'd actually have not for a while. We haven't had like hats and shirts and bags and stuff that have 
have our logo on it, and you can get those. Um, now, who knows? They might be collector's items one day. Uh, go ahead and uh, go to Overthinking and check check that out. And uh, check out the gift guide where you can see our awesome gift recommendations for yourself or the overthinkers in your life. We'll be back next week with more Overthinking It podcast. Till then, visit us on the web at overthinkingit.com, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It, it probably, probably doesn't, doesn't deserve, deserve. Oh, <laughs>